Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Glad to be here with you this hour. Another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. How many of you have ever re-downloaded the same file like maybe 50 times? How many of you have done that? How many of you have gone to a website and downloaded, I don't know, the Ubuntu 18.04 installation ISO or the CentOS 7 point, you know, whatever installation ISO? How many of you have done that? You download a file, you save it to your laptop, you delete the file, or you save it to your desktop, you delete the file, you go, you delete, go download the same file again. How many of you know when you delete the file that you're going to go back to that same site and download the exact same file again? Why don't you just save the file so you have it and go back to it? Where are you going with this, Noah? I promise this is going to lead to something big over the course of the show. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to fully unpack that all of this in this episode. We take all sorts of steps to dehumanize and depersonalize technology and data. We want to treat it as sterile as possible because I think it makes us feel more comfortable. And at the end of the day, it's all tied to trust. We trust that the cloud is going to keep our data safe. We trust that the admins that work inside of Dropbox, inside of Google Drive, are more suited to tend to keeping our data safe than everybody else. And I think that is a major problem for those of us that struggle with this idea of, do we store it locally? Do we store it in the cloud? These billion-dollar companies, we believe, can keep our data safer than we can. I mean, maybe it gets leaked, maybe they mine it for information, but at the end of the day, when you want to go back and look at your kids' pictures, at least you can trust they'll be on Google Photos. And if you store it on your FreeNAS server, well, maybe the house burns down, maybe the box crashes, maybe it gets hacked, maybe you get infested by malware. Nobody ever even considers the fact that, like, you've never heard anybody, I've never heard anybody talk about, well, I'm worried about storing my data on Dropbox because they might get infested with uh, some sort of malware. Or maybe Dropbox doesn't do a good enough job of backing their data up, and so I might lose my data if I store it on Dropbox. Nobody says that, right? We have a lot of complaints about cloud storage, so, cloud storage services, but none of them relate to reliability or trust. And so we have an insane amount of trust in the cloud. And it's true. Right? It's true. When you're Google and you have billions and billions of dollars to, to spend on your data center and on your hard drives and on your servers, obviously, you're going to have a really good hard drive and a really good server and a really robust system administration team that's going to attend to every little thing. You're going to have a budget to pay people just to think and dream up ways to back the servers up, to back up the data sets, to move them around. High availability, allow access from anywhere in the world and replicate that data across multiple data centers so anybody can get to their data from anywhere at lightning speed. That convenience factor, coupled with that trust, is such a powerful thing that sucks people in, it's unbelievable. And I have been seeing that in a whole new way this week, and so I, I wanted to take a couple moments and share it with you. 
because it's true. Google can keep your data safe. They will make sure that if you upload it to Google Drive, that same files will be there one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. It's true. If you upload your data into Dropbox, if you let them store it, they're probably going to keep it safe. You're probably not going to have a problem losing your data on, on any of these cloud services. But you know what? You can keep it safe too. You're good enough. You're good enough to keep it safe. You're smart enough. You have the tools. You have the resources. You know how to keep that data safe. And we have gotten burned as system administrators. We have gotten burned as tech enthusiasts. We have gotten burned as family members. We've all had that experience where we've put a ton of work into saving something, into organizing some perfect file system, a collection of ISOs, a collection of pictures, a photo library, a movie library, whatever it is. And then we've had that thing ripped out from under us. It, the, the machine crashed. We didn't back it up well enough. We got lazy. We got complacent. We forgot about it. Whatever it is, there was some bad thing that happened. For me, it was when I moved. I, I, I moved out of my parents' house, and that caused this massive um, just upheaval in my life to the point I wasn't concentrated on my data. And so I had this break in my data where there was data, but you know, before, before I, when I lived at my, my condo when I was back in college, there was another break when I moved into our first house and I got married. There's another break when we moved into our new house. Each one of those times when some major a life event happened, and it caused me to come compl become complacent about data. I trusted my data, my local data storage just a little bit less. And the cloud became that much more appealing because I was looking over and I was saying, you know, the only things I have access to are the things I stored on Google Drive. The only thing I have access to are the things that were on Dropbox. Those things are always there. All the rest of my data, I have it. I stored it. I did the local thing. I did what I was supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to own my data. I have it. It's just buried on a hard drive inside of five boxes somewhere in a storage, you know, facility. And, oh, by the way, I don't remember exactly what the encryption password was. I know it's one of these, like, nine that I have memorized. But to be secure, I wanted a different password. For, you know what I mean? This is, what, this is the, the thing that some of us have gone through. We have gotten so caught up in trying to manage our data properly that we have gotten overwhelmed with it and just, just dumped it off onto the cloud. And if you're doing that, if you're relying on the cloud, it's because you don't trust your own data storage system. I had a hard drive failure this week. I, if you guys can't tell, I am. Uh, this is where my headspace is at. And we're going to get to a lot of Linux-specific things. Not going to spend the whole hour on this, but I do want to take a couple of moments and just kind of address this. I had, a data, I, had a, I had a drive failure. No big deal. Drive failure in my NAS. ZFS pool told me, hey, drive fell offline. In fact, I don't even really, I wouldn't even necessarily call it a failure. It is a, um, it's the beginning of a failure. Drive fell offline. I went downstairs, pulled the drive out. Plugged it back in, came back online, it resilvered the array, everything was fine. But, you know, I'm not going to trust that. The drive fell offline, time to replace it, right? So I ordered a new drive, replaced it, ZFS did its thing, it's fine. But here's what I noticed. What I noticed was, it didn't bother me as much as I thought it would, that my NAS, the largest storage thing that I have was in potential failure. Like, it was it was a thing I was like, ah, I should probably get another drive, but I didn't, you know, run downstairs and shut the NAS off and, you know, pray over it or anything like that. I just, Amazon Prime didn't pay for expedited shipping. I just regular primed a, another Western Digital Red, and I figured when it gets here, I'll swap it in, we'll make it happen. And And it clicked for me. I realized I wasn't trusting my own data storage. If it died, it was fine, because all the stuff I really cared about right now Today, that's really important stuff that I'm really working on, the day-to-day -day stuff, that's all on C-File or Telegram. I drop photos in Telegram. I have entire chats with people in which I have dropped production resources, show resources, everything that I need to do a given project just in Telegram. If I need it, I can search in Telegram. I find the thing. I pull the file out. It's good to go. 
What does that tell me? I don't have trust in my own data storage. That's what it is, right? I have local data storage. I have the best data storage, but I didn't trust it. And so I spent the rest of the week not just cleaning up this little drive failure. I swapped that, but I started to look back at my own data storage and start pulling stuff off the cloud and putting it on my own on my own data storage. And what I realized was in, in deep down, I have all the technical bits. I understand backups. I understand ZFS. We all know how to do snapshots. We all know what file system we want to use and what we trust. And by the way, that's not ButterFS for those of you that are wondering. I know exactly what tools I want to use. I know how to back things up properly, right? You set up a second machine, you have it R-Sync every single, you know, it, it, first of all, snapshots are taking care of hourly stuff. Every night it backs up to another machine. You probably want some sort of cold shelf backup, something that's not connected to the internet, that's not online, so it gets dumped there maybe once a week or once a month. Develop a system. Now, we all concentrate on stuff. like We concentrate on things like calendars and contacts. We concentrate on, uh, on things like photos and videos. When, when you ask people, what things are important? And believe me, this is something that occurs once a week at AltaSpeed. People come into the shop. Hey, I want to back up my laptop. I want to buy a new one. What data do you need? Photos, videos, contacts, calendars, emails. Those are the five things that people want. Notice where cloud companies are making their money. Unlimited email storage. Unlimited photo storage. Free calendar applications. These cloud companies have, have identified this. They figured, out, they figured you out, and they know exactly what's important to you. Here's the thing that cloud companies can't do. Here's what local storage can do, and here's what I'm figuring out. I have, I, I'm in a very unique position, and there's, there's going to be a part two to this, or a dedicated video or a guide or something. I haven't figured it out yet, but somehow I've got to brain dump everything that I have been learning because if I can save somebody the headache that I have been struggling with for the past 10 or 15 years to get my head wrapped around this stuff, I would be glad to do that. But here, here is essentially what it comes down to. ZFS had me safe. So the actual drive failure was nothing. But what I learned was that if data is too big, you can't store it, you can't manage it, you can't back it up. And for the price of a 12 terabyte hard drive, you're going to pay out the wazoo to get that same storage system on a cloud. So if you have a bunch of data, it actually makes more cost-effective sense to build out a local system and then start backing it up yourself and storing all of this stuff yourself. And the, the key to all of this is trust. You have to trust the system. You have to devise a system that you trust. And even if it's not perfect, you put trust in the system. And over time, the organization of the data set which isn't nearly as important as having an organizational system for the data set that you understand, eventually you get to a point where you've consolidated all of your data, pulled all your data off the cloud and stored it in this one system. And so as I've gone through this, I've come up with a couple of tips. And the, the, again, we concentrate so many, so many times on the, the big stuff, photos, videos, pictures, movies, TV shows, right? Those things are actually fairly replaceable except for the photos, but everything else is fairly replaceable. I can always go rebuy a TV show, re-download a movie, whatever. The, it's the little digital bits, and I include, you know, photographs in this, obviously, personal photographs and personal videos, but it's the little digital bits. It's the article that you found that you thought, hey, that's not going to stay up for very long. I should save a copy. The file that, or the, the file or the screenshot that you took of that one person or that one conversation, the IRC log where you had a really interesting interaction with somebody or something that marked a special moment in your life, whatever it is, those little tiny digital bits that don't have some big category that some cloud service isn't targeting you. What do you do with those pieces of information and how do you set it up in such a way that you're able to find it 
because we can all store stuff. I can all throw stuff on a big pit inside of a folder inside of a NAS. But how do I actually find that stuff if I ever want to recover it? And so I've been going about the process of designing an organizational system and a, a way for your mind to kind of think through this. And essentially what I've done is I've created, imagine this, imagine if you were trying to organize your house and somebody lent you the use of a warehouse space. And they said, here, you can use this, you know, 10,000 square foot warehouse. You would start by probably purchasing some storage racks and you probably start by purchasing bins and you would start to put the bins on the storage racks and then label them and put your corresponding property inside of the bins and organize it in some way. It doesn't matter how you do it, but that's the basic premise, right? And you can do the exact same thing with a folder hierarchy on a NAS, on a local file storage system. And so that's what I did. I basically, I divided up by year. And so anything from life that happened in that given year, I try to subdivide as much as possible. But at the end of the day, as long as it's in the appropriate year folder inside of this massive archive thing, now I have something I can go back and reference. So when my wife comes and says, hey, I was looking for the blah, blah, blah photo from this, or I was looking for this tax document, or I was looking for this. I, if I, if it's not in my organizational system, I can go back into this gigantic archive thing, go to the year in which I'm looking for a file. If I have that file, that's where it's going to be. Is it a foolproof place or foolproof method that you're going to save everything ever? No. But it means if you do have something, you're going to know exactly where that file is. And so being able to come up with the, these unique ways to kind of store this stuff and think about this, I'm a digital pack rat and I've been doing this my whole life since I was seven years old, eight years old. To me, it always made more sense to have everything on a hard drive rather than in physical paper. And so to the point that I would scan and take photos of stuff just so I had digital copies of everything. And the problem is doing that for 25 years, it's great. And it, it provides me with a tremendous amount of power and flexibility. The problem is without a proper organizational scheme and without having all that stuff in one central location that I trust, that can be backed up, that's secure, that is trustworthy, without having that in place, saving all that data is useless. There's, I have nothing to do with it. And so, yeah, I mean, I realized I've been relying on cloud services way more often than I wanted to. 855-450 no that's 1-855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com you're on ask noah good afternoon hi there uh my name's brett calling you from chicago thanks hey. for taking my call hey brett welcome to the program thank you um i had a question for you um about um trying to get a functional smb share going um as a linux client um to either a windows or or Linux server, it doesn't really matter. But um, I guess I've been trying to work on a plan or a project to get a couple of laptops in our office here to that don't need to necessarily be running Windows, to that just need like web browser plus a couple other little things okay. to maybe do Linux instead. And one of the stumbling blocks I've been having is one of those other things we kind of need is to be able to give them access over SMB to our, our pre-existing um, Samba server. And I'm kind of, this is on, you know, I've been playing around on Kubuntu 18.04, and I kind of can have it either one of two ways, it seems, so far, unless you can kind of help me find a better solution. One is I can use the built-in to the Dolphin File Manager, SMB browser, which works really great. Everything's super smooth, except it kind of only works in... KDE-ish applications that kind of understand that KIO layer. Um, 
or you know, I can kind of get around that by having a real honest-to-goodness file system mount, which um, I was able to get the program SMB4K installed. That's four with the, the digit. And that gets me a real file system mount. The advantage of that is every last program can see it. It's just another part in my file system tree. But uh, because this is a laptop, when that network connection goes down or it changes network, um, the SMB connection is just hanging the whole system because the kernel, I think, is waiting for it, the mount to come back. And sure. sometimes it never comes back. And I could, that's kind of the either or. I mean, I can either have it hang the whole system and be available everywhere, or I can have it not hang the whole system and only be in plasma KDE speaking applications. Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you have a, an idea for a solution for that that yeah. gets me the best. Well, there's a couple different ways. Okay, so let's start with the absolute best solution and work our way backwards to probably what you're going to have to do given your, your requirements. Now, you said existing SMB share. So I'm going to assume that the, the server is a Windows server and that the, the server itself is not modifiable. We can only work on the client end. Uh, no, actually, I, I do have full control over the server, and it's a FreeNAS server. Oh, it is? Um, but there's there's some legacy baggage here in that yeah, yeah. Um, it's a connection that has to be shared with Windows and Mac clients sure. as well. SMB is kind of the lowest common denominator protocol. It is, I, but I free, kind of free FreeNAS, sol FreeNAS solves your whole problem, and I'll explain how. So okay. here's the here's the here's the fundamental beauty of FreeNAS and how it's going to fix your how it's going to address your problem specifically. If you were on Windows, this wouldn't be an option. FreeNAS gives you this flexibility. Yes, you're right. You need a you need a you need a common denominator so that everything can talk. The part that you're missing is you're not looking for a common denominator in file sharing. You're looking for a common denominator in common place to store files. It doesn't matter how we get to that share. If we're SSHing into the share, we're edifying into the share, we're Samba-ing into the share, or heck, even if we're FTPing into the share, it doesn't matter as long as all the data from the respective clients are getting to the same place. That's what really counts. So in Linux, the most efficient way to do what you're trying to do is mount an NFS share and add that NFS share to mount on in FSTAP. Because what's going to happen is with NFS at least on my systems, if it doesn't see that NFS share, it'll hang up for a brief moment or, you know, a couple seconds, but then it will continue booting and you'll log into your system and you're just, you'll have an empty folder where your NFS share would be. And obviously, if you don't have access to, to the network resources, there's not much you can do. Now, one of the things that I've done to avoid somebody inadvertently storing something into a folder and then going, oh, that's right, the NFS share wasn't mounted, is I... The, the actual NF, the, the parent root directory of the NFS share isn't where, where, what I create the shortcuts. I create the shortcuts to something inside of that. That way, when the user goes to click on the shortcut for that NFS share, if it doesn't populate immediately, it'll give them an error and say, could not find this folder. Of course, it can't find that folder because let's say the NFS share is NFS big. I'll just use that example. And inside of big, I have users and inside of users, I have Noah. I'll make a shortcut to Noah. If I'm not connected to my NFS share and I click on Noah, I'm going to get Dolphin's going to give me an error and say, hey, idiot, there is no NOAA inside of users inside of NFS Big. And the reason for that is because that NFS share isn't there. Um, if you do that, if you mount the NFS share inside of FSTAB, uh, it will be completely transparent to the user. In fact, as far as anybody will know, you're working with quote-unquote local files. They're just local files that happen to take a little bit longer to open and local files that happen to take a little bit longer to copy. Mm. What about... Um is you know I I have some concerns about mixing network file sharing protocols mm -hmm. because of issues like if somebody on an SM 
who's sharing that file over SMB opens it at the same time as someone opening it over NFS. Do you have like con conflicts in the file locking semantics? The the way that that FreeNAS understand the way that FreeNAS handles uh, file locking is it will create a well it does two things it creates a lock file it also creates a swap file for that for that for that particular file so in the well. Actually, FreeNAS isn't creating the swap file. Your local machine is creating the swap file. But anyway, point is that there is anytime if I open it from my laptop, let's say I open mydocument.txt on my laptop through NFS, it's going to create a swap file called mydocument.txt.swp because it has that swap file. And that's where it's actively writing information uh, as it's saving out from the memory and like Kate, for example, right? If Kate were to crash for any reason, all of the stuff that was in memory is... It exists in that swap file. So if you had a conflict where two people tried to save the exact same file at the exact same time, even if it was over NFS and Samba, what's I, and I'd have to try this to be a hundred percent sure, but I believe what's going to happen is first you're going to get a first you're going to get a conflict message that's going to say, "Hey, idiot! The last time that you when you open this file, it was a different file than what it is now. So if I save it, you're going to overwrite a file that's already been changed." Uh, because there's already been changes that have committed to that. What do you want to do? Do you want to save a new file or do you want to, um, you know, or do you want to discard your changes or whatever? That's what I think will happen. I'd have to try that to be sure. But in any case, um, I have mixed Samba and NFS numerous times with no real issues. The only thing you have to make sure to set up if you're going to do that is uh, you want to, inside of FreeNAS, there is a permission structure in the data set, and you want to make sure that the permission set is automatically applying a standard permission set to every file that's ingested in that data set. So that, that will prevent permission errors from... Uh, you know, a user that doesn't exist or a group that doesn't exist and somebody copied that file on there and now nobody else can open it. Um, you want to make sure to, inside of the permissions for the data set, tell FreeNAS, hey, always apply these permissions and this group assignment and this user assignment to these files so we have a static set to work with. Past that, it's fine. Let me give you another option, though, in case you get down the road and you say, yeah, it's just, I'm not liking this multi-sharing multi protocol. I'd really like to stick with SMB. The other thing you can do, it's not, it's not as great of an option um, because, frankly... Windows came up with, uh, you know, the Windows file sharing protocol. And as Linux guys, we've just had to play their game ever since. And so Samba really isn't optimized for Linux. I mean, we've done the best we can. But at the end of the day, it's a Windows file sharing protocol that we're inheriting, right? Well, as you say, it happens to be the lowest common denominator. And every rink-eating device under the sun uses it. So it's worthwhile to uh, to hang on to and, and to understand and deploy. But... At the same time, there are better options out there. Um, you can use CIF utils. So uh, S or excuse me, C I F S dash utils, and I'll have a uh, I don't know how I put a link for the show notes. That's the utility. If you install that, you'll be able to add an entry in FSTAB for the the Samba share. Now the only issue with SIFs, I haven't tried. I've not tried using SIFs if I'm not on the same network. So if I departed the network, if I left the office and started my laptop up, what would happen when that Samba share isn't there? NFS just, it looks for it. If it doesn't find it, it continues on. I can't tell you definitively that SIFS would do that. However, I will tell you that was taught to me by a Red Hat instructor. So I would, logic dictates that that's the most sane way to go to, to have an auto-mounting uh, Samba share. I see. Yeah, because I we could, you know, as uh, as the IT people get access to FSTAB, but these will be users who are running as non-roots um, and, mm -hmm. and non-tech users too. But um, I suppose that's not 
too different from today where we need to teach people how to map their drives in Windows and things yeah, like what, that. Yeah, what, what I'll typically do is I'll just have a shell. They have pseudo-privileges, right? Uh, they would not, most likely. Oh, okay. Well, then you're right. You'd have to have an administrator do it. But what I do is I just have a little shell script that that uh, that modifies FSTab and adds the the entry and for the given server thing. And then uh, the shell script just asks for the username. I type it in, and it figures everything out based on the directory structure that I have. Uh, so that that's how I run. And that's how you, if you got you know 500 laptops to do, obviously it's going to be a pain to sit there and do each one by hand. So if you have a little, you have a script, and then you can use something like Puppet and, and send it out and, and do the whole shebang at once. Or uh, in in the event that, you know, a lot of organizations, they'll give the user pseudo-privileges to their own local machine. Um, if that's the case, I just give them the script, say double-click on this and uh, and run it, type in your username, and it will make everything happen for you. Um, so that's that's one way to do that. Also, I Big Walt in the chat room says he uses AutoFS to mount Samba shares on laptops. So that might be something to look into as well. I see, yeah. That uh, that was one thing we were toying with, but I, I don't think we'd actually given a uh, real thought to. Okay. Well, does that give you something to go off of anyway? Yeah, I, th I think so. Because, yeah, if, uh, if NFS doesn't have that problem where if, uh, you know, the network is not reliable, that you will you'll have a whole hang in the in the system or just a, take five minutes to boot up or five minutes to shut down, that sort of thing, then... That might be worth looking at if we can figure out the permissions and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so and and to be clear, I uh, it's been a long time since I have set a an NFS share or something like that up on a machine that didn't exist inside of an office. You know, these days with VPN technology and stuff like that, there's almost never a situation in which we set up a a storage system where we if the machine is going to be taken outside of the of the corporate environment, there's usually something in place that kicks off to get them access back to that that file system because obviously the corporate laptop is useless if you don't have access to corporate resources when you're outside the office. And if it doesn't leave the office, we then... Go, go ahead. For that. Uh, sorry, and I was saying, yeah, sure, we, we have an open VPN server on our uh, PFSense router for that. Sure. So, I mean, I, to, to a degree, I don't... I, I, I'd be lying to you if I said I dealt a whole lot with systems that didn't have any access whatsoever to their to their parent server um, but that that's the direction I would totally go down if I were in your if I woke up in your shoes. And what about something like um, WebDAV? Have you have you played with that? At yes, all? yes. WebDAV is fantastic. Is uh, is it's a totally different beast than um, than NFS or or Samba. It's it's it's, it's it, if you think about it in terms of totally local to totally cloud, WebDAV is as far in the totally cloud as you can get to without going to some sort of sync client and or, you know, web interface thing, right? WebDAV is the ability to remotely mount a network drive over the internet, and it works fantastically. Um, the the easiest way to get that up and running for most users, now this isn't necessarily about you, but to, because you just use FreeNAS, but you know, most users, the easiest way to get something like that set up is with a, with a, a NextCloud, OwnCloud kind of a thing. Um, and, and WebDAV just basically is a way to mount storage locally that exists over the internet and I, I don't have enough good things to say about web dev the only problem with it is again going back to my my earlier monologue about trust are you trusting that every piece of data you have is shared over the internet and being sent back and forth over the internet i mean we've got https and we've got passwords and vpns and all that stuff but do you trust it um if the answer to that question is yes web dev is a great way to go if the answer to that question is no then you're wasting your time setting it up because if you don't trust it you're not going to use it sure 
well, you know, we were kind of toying with the idea if, if we could do like a, you know, forklift upgrade, just like throw away what we have and pave over and start fresh, you know, a next cloud server even behind our VPN using web dev would still give us kind of lowest common denominator oh, yeah. uh, file sharing. But we kind of have this legacy SMB system to not break for everybody else while we get the new thing up and running. If I was if I was a more patient person, Ultraspeed Technologies would 100% run on web dev. I would I put all of our files on there, and that's what I would do with everything. The, my problem is I'm lazy and I'm impatient. Uh, well, it's not entirely fair. I guess we also do a lot of work in environments where I don't have access to the internet, so I kind of have to have certain things locally. But um, right now, the way we do everything at Ultraspeed is with C files. So there's low. Everybody has a local copy, and if you think about it, it's kind of the GitHub approach. It's decentralized, right? Like the C, the C, uh, the C Hub server is what actually goes about the process of making sure we all stay in sync with each other. But really, we all keep a separate copy of of the company data. So as long as one employee is left standing, I, I have all of the company data. Everybody has a copy of it. So I, in in that way, it's beneficial. The downside to that is obviously we can't. I, I can't store any of the HR stuff. I can't store any of the payroll stuff. Like there are certain stuff that just can't ever go inside of the inside of that really cool, uh, robust info backed up infrastructure because obviously you can't let everybody have access to those things, and so it's created this weird split of like here's the stuff that only certain people have access to, and here's the thing that everybody has access to, and the stuff that everybody has access to gets synced around. It, the smarter way to do that would be with web dev, and then create various different shares with various different permissions to let people do it. If I had it to do over again, that's what I would do. I'm just, you know, I'm a lazy individual. What can I say? And do you think web dev could live together with SMB if I yes. could somehow get get the two to play together without uh, file locking problems? Uh, again, with FreeNAS, your job is simple. It, it's literally as simple as clicking on the services tab and turning on WebDAV, and now you've enabled WebDAV to the same data storage set. You know, the, 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 FreeNAS really doesn't give it enough credit when we start talking about how it accommodates us as system administrators, because FreeNAS is really going to, it's des, it's specifically designed for you as an administrator to create the data set inside of the storage pool, and then after that, uh, the sharing services, each one of them can be individually pointed to various parts or entire parts of that of that data set. And you can either create separate data sets if you want, you know, maybe each user has their own data set. And then there's a web dev share and a, for certain users and Samba shares to other users. Maybe there's one central public drive that everybody has access to and it has, you know, web dev access and samba access and nfs access and maybe there's maybe there's one really really public thing where it's not it's just like uh i don't know in our case we have uh, owner's manuals is a great example we have uh, owner's manuals that are in a it's in a pdf share so that technicians can get access to you know a, a cisco router uh manual so they can look up documentation all of that stuff is accessible even by ftp and obviously that folder that is accessible by ftp only has stuff that could be downloaded off the internet because you can't we can't put anything confidential in there that has to be separated. So we have multiple different data sets that, that kind of go about that. So you could go about the process of doing that. But FreeNAS is going to make your life so much easier because it's it's your everything you're talking about is, from the FreeNAS side anyway, is like a five-minute thing. You click two buttons and, and, and set some permissions and you're set. Uh, from the client side, obviously, depending on how many client machines you have, there's some work there. Sure, sure. That might... Um that might work because we, we already have that split that you're talking about between kind of the, the free-for-all public share and then the kind of more locked-down user access, con access right. controlled share mm -hmm. or stuff like that. Um, and I think I was looking briefly at the, the FreeNAS web dev 
um, instruction manual, and I guess there's kind of only one user account they'll give you on that. Um, just a oh. limitation of how they implemented it, it looks like. Interesting. So you could use that free-for-all, but not for the user access control one. Well, that's frustrating. That's really stupid. I I uh, I wasn't aware of that. I well, here, and here's the thing. I've not like I said. If I set up web dev for somebody, it's usually on an on a Nextcloud instance. But uh, what a silly oversight on on Freenas. I have to look into why that is. Yeah, I think you have to be the user literally named web dev. It's kind of weird. It seems like a a security nightmare. B it seems highly inflexible, and C it seems like the very antithesis of the way that everything else in FreeNAS is designed. So I'm going to look into that a little bit. I, I, I apologize on behalf of the FreeNAS guys. I'm not sure what uh, what the reason is for that. Yeah, that's all right. I mean, it would solve uh, at least half our problem. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and for then, sure. Uh, I guess we could use... Um, so I, I don't know if I'm going to face the same problem or not if I did something like WebDAV, or even this would probably apply to NFS if I used Dolphin to mount it. Mm -hmm. I'm still going to have the KIO... Um, curtain that I can either be in front of or behind of. Right. And it'll work for those who are there and, and speak that and won't work for those who don't. Um, NFS, you said I could solve that with FSTAB. Is there a similar solution for WebDAV that you know of? Uh, can you mount WebDAV in FSTAB? I think you can. Um, it's highly professional because I'm just looking it up. Yes, DAV to, uh, DAVFS2. Um, so there is a there is a file system driver called DAVFS2. I'll put a link for you in the show notes, and it allows you to mount a web DAV resource um, as as a local file system. I figured that was that had to have been possible. The the last time I played with doing that, something similar to that was I had a I had a, a Google Chromebook. I had a Pixel, and I wanted to. It only had sixty four gigabytes of storage, and so I wanted a cloud based storage system that wasn't Google, but I wanted it to act as if it was a local drive, much like the Chrome. Uh, book natively does and they set up webdav to do something like that and i'm pretty sure davfs is how i did it um but that was you know that was eight years ago i don't remember but uh sure but yeah no uh, davfs2 and I'll, again i'll put a link to the show notes so you have it if you want to do some more research on that all right well i uh, appreciate the information do, do you have time for one more question or should i call you back another time no you bet go for it yeah so un totally unrelated well only partially unrelated but i'm wondering as someone who probably has a lot of Linux desktops out in the field that uh, are just, you, you administer when they need administration, but not all the time. How do you handle updating those systems? Is it like a scheduled manual visit, or do you install something like unattended upgrades? And if so, how do you schedule something like a reboot to apply a kernel update? So that is a great question. It is a fantastic question. I'm honestly surprised nobody has ever asked something like that before. And it's kind of an embarrassing answer, to be honest with you. And the answer is is this. And I, I, I got to warn you, it's a little crass. Um, the reality is, as much as I want people to make good decisions with their data, and as much as I would like to participate in making good decisions with other people's data... At the end of the day, I have to be able to put food on my kitchen table. And so what that means is I can only afford to do work that I'm paid to do. Uh, and so and it's important to understand that, that setup because what I'm going to say next is, is going to come off a little harsh. I don't back people's data up, nor do I do uh, any sort of updates or maintenance unless we're specifically asked to do so. Uh, and the reason for that is is twofold. First of all, like I said, if I just went or I, I would I would have no life and I would have no company left and I would have no resources or employees left, they would all spend all of their time every day going from one client to the other, updating routers and switches and firmware and access points and everything under the sun. I mean, that's all we would do if, if we were doing that, right? So we let the client make that decision on 
when they want to update their firmware, when they want to update to the latest version of FreeNAS, for example, um, they get to make that decision and then we give them a quote and we come in and do the upgrade. Now, the other side of that is there are certain clients that say, listen, I am not technically savvy enough to be able to make that decision. I need somebody else to make that decision for me. And so I will pay you a flat monthly fee. Uh, and in exchange for that flat monthly fee, you just take care of everything. If something breaks, you fix it. If you need updates, you make the updates. If there's a security patch, you take care of the security patch. If it gets hacked, you you clean it up. No matter what happens, you, we just play this flat monthly fee uh, unless there's hardware involved, in which case we'll pay for the hardware. And that contract service, if they're on a contract, then the way that we go about updates is monthly. We do them every single month. Every every client that's on a contract, their their router firmware gets updated. These, if there's a switch, the switch firmware gets updated. The access points get updated. Um, any of the operating systems, if they're on contract, all of those individual computers get updated. Servers get updated. All of that stuff, and that happens on a 30-day basis. I see. Do you manage some, that with something like? Puppet or Ansible, or, or do you actually go and log into everything? Depends on how big the client is. If they've got one, a lot of small businesses are a, we have a FreeNAS server, we have a access point, we have a switch, and we have a router, and that's the entirety of their network. If it's something like that, there's no point in, in, in setting up a management infrastructure because management or automated updating is really a, it's a function to save time. It's really not... Well, it is better in certain ways, but uh, I I like the engagement of an individual employee physically going over to a client, sitting down with them, manually doing updates to these various things, and they've spent some time with that client. They've gotten FaceTime in. One, it it the cl the client then knows that we're doing the work that they're paying us to do because it uh, because they saw us there. But the other part of it is I I can look back in the in the ticket log and I know that was done and I know an actual human being verified the process of those things being updated and that they're working wrong. And in the one in a million chance that there is a problem, and it doesn't happen often, but it does happen, in the one in a million chance there is a problem, well guess what? That employee had his entire day or her entire day set aside to go do that update. So when it crashed, it's all right. We had a backup router in place or we had a backup whatever in place and so we just worked the problem and, and get it solved but the the short answer to your question is if you're looking for a schedule uh, we do schedule monthly for clients gotcha well i appreciate the perspective on that thank y you yeah i appreciate the conversation that was a great call and and i don't know if you intentionally timed that or if it just worked out that way but i uh you are working on on your freenas storage system at the same time i am working on my freenas storage system so i i appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about that FFmpeg 4.2 has been released with AV1 decoding support. Um, one of the most powerful tools in Linux, and I do mean one of the most powerful tools in Linux, oftentimes when we start talking about tools, uh, we talk about our desire to have more proprietary tools available on Linux because they're big name manufacturers and they work in every other operating system. We would like them to work on Linux. Well, one of the tools that everybody and every other operating system wants to work for them originated on Linux. That is FFmpeg. And in the world that we live in, if we, if literally everything from security cameras to social media sites to news stations are using FFmpeg to get their work done. It is one of the most powerful tools ever in the history of of Linux development. Absolutely fantastic. And a new version 4.2 uh, has been made available. The highlights are AVI decoding support, uh, Chrome shift and Ruba shift filters, freeze detect filters, PCM DVD decoder, uh, a GIF parser, support for decoding of HEVC444 content, uh, a, a uh, AV1 
frame split built filter, VP4 video decoder, and and MOV Muxer that writes tracks to unspecified language instead of Linux or English by default. They've also added support for using Clang to compile CUDA kernels. Now, I'll be honest with you, I am not an FFmpeg expert by any stretch of the imagination. I get my I correctly and my O correctly, and then I just pray and hope that everything works out. Um, so I'm not qualified to tell you how big or not big of a uh, release this is, but the people that are very excited and get uh, very worked up about FFmpeg are saying this is a very, very cool release. Again, you two can join the program at 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. You can email us live at, can or <laughs> live at AskNoahShow.com. You're on the Ask Noah Show. Good afternoon. Oh, hey, man. Welcome. Hey, I just had a quick question for you. Um, I'm wanting to... Uh, host several different little uh, server type projects at home and uh, my collection seems to be kind of growing a little bit and I've, I've got a couple of Raspberry Pis but I feel like you can only really run like maybe one application really per Pi and uh, that seems a little pricey to start buying more Pis for all the things I kind of want to do. Uh, I didn't know if you had any recommendations for finding like reasonably priced servers or any kind of recommendations uh, where to find some perhaps maybe. Yeah. So the first things first, your 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 math intuition is correct. It buying a computer per task is going to be the most expensive way, arguably the most uh, robust way, but the most expensive way to run any any particular application, right? It's just it's just very expensive even at a Raspberry Pi. By the time you get done with the case and the power supply and stuff like that, you're probably into it 70 80 bucks. Um and uh, and and then you're and then you're stuck with the power of a Pi. Um, the, the far more cost effective way to do that is to virtualize and then, and then new computers per task become essentially free. And you also have the added advantage of when you upgrade one machine, everything gets upgraded. When you upgrade a processor, every server you have gets upgraded. You put more RAM and every server has access to more RAM. You upgrade storage, every server has access to more storage. So it's a, to me, it's a far more robust way to do it as far as where, what to look for in a virtual host. Um, I'm partial to the Dell R710s. They're a few years older now, so that you can get them at a reasonable price. But they were the creme de la creme of of uh, virtualization servers when they were at their prime, uh, and they're still very, very capable. And so we actually purchase a number of 710s from, you know, news places and um, colleges and stuff like that, places that have a lot of uh, redundant storage. And we'll pull those 710s out and we clean them up. Sorry, go ahead. That's what I got you. Yeah, and we clean them up a little bit. And the only thing to watch out for with any sort of Dell server is that you have to, uh, if you're going to use FreeNAS, and you should use FreeNAS if you're using, a, oh no, virtualization, I'm sorry. Uh, if you're using a 710 for FreeNAS, I'll just finish my thought, you need to set the RAID level to zero on every single drive so that FreeNAS has essentially direct access to the disk. It's not perfectly direct access because there's still some header information from the, from the RAID card, but the 710 and the 720s, they're not, most Dell servers are not available available without a RAID card. So you just have to run it in RAID 0 and make each disk its own RAID 0 array uh, and then give FreeNAS access to it. And it's essentially as good as having FreeNAS access directly to the disk, at least for the purpose of keeping ZFS intact. Um, in your case, I would use something like Red Hat or CentOS and install libvirt-d or cockpit and, and run libvirt-d underneath and then run, a, and then run virtual servers. The, the process 
uh, Brad, to get that to get that up and running is literally like three commands, and you'll have a virtual server come yeah. up and running. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I'll be able to kind of handle that part of it. I'm trying to. So, a few of the applications I'm running is uh, Nextcloud, uh, like a Minecraft server for the kids. Uh, I would like to do some type of media streaming server, uh, as well as little websites or custom hosted projects or whatever. Uh, I was just trying to think: is is that kind of a small enough thing that I could should maybe would it be more cost effective to kind of buy a more beefy computer, sort of like what you're talking about with the Dell server? Or is that something I can go like on the lower end and buy like a little two hundred dollar PC or something uh, that could handle all that virtualization stuff? Well, let's start with this. the The seven ten, for example, I think supports up to one hundred and twenty eight gigs of RAM, and it can support. I think most of them have eight drive bays. Is that right? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, I think so. Eight drive base, something like that. I'll look when I get home. But it, it's, uh, it, yeah. but they, they support like eight drive base. I mean, the chances of you outgrowing a 710 are fairly slim. By the time you get to outgrowing a, a 710, you're probably doing a lot on your network. But let's just say that you're there. Um, I would that I would look at something like a 720. And once you get past the, you know, some of the higher end Dells, it no longer becomes cost effective to purchase a used server. At some point, you have to make the transition and say, I'm just going to custom build something. And if you're going to custom build something, I'd go with a super micro board. Um, and then you can pick whatever case you want, whatever power supply you want. And, um, and then you 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 custom build a box and you you know you pick the case out and the and the board depending on how many SATA ports you need and how many drives you want how many processors you want how much RAM you want you'd you'd start to custom build that but I mean by the time you're talking I mean by the time you outgrow the seven ten you're probably sinking five grand um, to get a to get a free NAS server and you might get there I, I mean the the server that sits down in my house that had a drive failure I mean it it literally is used for everything from video editing to uh, you know collecting data from the house i mean it's literally my baby uh and it has been in service and i when we moved into our new house i custom picked every tiny component from the processor to the brand and specific lot number of ram to the i to the hard like everything you can imagine uh detailed scrutiny went into to picking out that that file server and it served me well so far but it was custom built because um I use it for so much. So if you if you get to a point where you're really pushing the server you may end up having to to custom build something Gotcha. All right. Well, I appreciate it, man. It's something to think on. Yeah. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Now, you can write in to live at asknoahshow.com. We take your feedback at the end of every episode. We'd love to, for you to join us. Uh, Alex writes in and says, hey, real quick, I love your show, and I love that you're giving a voice to reason when you know the Internet is exploding. Not only when you have the voice of reason, but also you say devil's advocate. I don't necessarily agree with them but understand where they're coming from and state it so the audience is aware. I really appreciate that. So now the topic of request. Do you mind possibly giving me an update on your home automation setup? I thought of this because of the Ring story, and I figured giving the brand, I'm sure you did a lot of research of the devices you used and why it would be helpful to people to opt in on the easy route and go with something like Ring. Not going to lie, though. I really want to get into home automation myself, and it would help me too. I do not want to try to avoid pitfalls of not controlling my data. And I agree with your methodology of the company shutdown. It won't affect your products. And so it won't affect your choice because they were built to last 
and have an internal automation hub. I remember hearing that from one of your episodes a long time ago. So I personally would enjoy hearing about it. Again, thank you so much for all you do for the community. P.S. I just finished up sending the PCI pass through to get it to work with LibD for Cali KVM for Hashcat. If you're interested, I can send a link. Heck yeah, I'm interested. Hashcat is one of the coolest pieces of software ever. If you ever need to break into a Lux encryption and you have an idea what the password is, but you don't exactly remember what it is, you can use something like Hashcat. And the fact that you got PCI Passthrough to work with LibVertD is cool in and of itself. In fact, I'd like to have you on the show. If you could reach out to me live at asknoahshow.com and send me your contact information, I'd love to. I'd love to get in contact with you. And. Uh, and let's see if we can work something out. So uh, update on home automation system. Absolutely. So the first thing you have to understand is that no system is perfect and everything is an evolution of time. And so one of the reasons I don't talk a lot about uh, some of these more complex systems a lot is because frankly, they're not very Linux specific. It's more of common sense specific. Um, and so that is to say, no one manufactures the best. Okay, there's no one manufacturer, there's no one magic bullet. It, it, what you have to understand is that there are various different companies that concentrate on in their individual markets and they rise to prominence for being the best in that specific market. And so expecting the best in every single market to come from the same manufacturer is just silly. It's stupid. It's, it doesn't exist. And so what you're looking for is companies who have standards. Now, oftentimes the companies that do the best work have their own standards. They have proprietary standards. It own their software that only runs in windows, but they do the best thing in that particular industry. And so we have to find a way to bring those into an open source, local controlled uh, environment. And there are ways to do that. If you're willing to put the time and research in the problem I see with most home automation systems is that they come off like a bad science project. It does not behave like an appliance. It, it, it behaves like a smartphone, right? When, when I hear people and I, I see people and they're so proud of it, they're, they're like, Hey, smart device, turn on this light. And then we wait and the light comes on, you know, and, or, or they do that thing. Oh, wait, 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 cancel, cancel, you know, that kind of stuff, right? There's, there's, it feels like a bad science project. It doesn't feel like it is part. It doesn't feel like an oven. It doesn't feel like a stove. It doesn't feel like a microwave. It doesn't feel like a washer or a dryer. The idea that you would tell somebody, "Hey, hold on, I, I have to set the dryer. Hold on, everybody, be quiet, so I can set the dryer here perfectly. Just, just wait a second. I have to reboot the washer before I can do a load of laundry. Got to reboot it. It hangs up sometimes. Like that kind of stuff would drive. It drives me nuts. It really does. And it starts to feel like a bad science project. And I don't want a bad science project running my house. I want my house to be automated. I want my house to work for me, not against me. And so you have to have a plan to tie all of these things together because there is no common standard. Uh, and so a couple of things to look for. Sometimes you'll get lucky and the, the best manufacturers always have some way to talk to their device. The problem is when you get into that really high end of, of stuff, it's usually something like closed contacts or serial controls. And the reason for that is because they work with everything. And so a, a lot of times they will have something like that if they have a way to interface. Oftentimes, uh, what you find is you you have another group of manufacturers that they don't have a way to talk to those devices, and so you have to be a little creative about it, or they have their own proprietary way to talk to it, and you have, you have to be creative about that. Um, so if you're looking to automate your house, my suggestion is start by automating around something, right? There are different things to automate around. For me, it's lights. A lot of people do security. So the security system becomes the the centerpiece, and then you build out from there. I did lights and built out from there. Um in general, a couple of things to look for. 
When you're looking for lights, there's no better manufacturer than Lutron. They have their own system for talking to it. It supports both a serial-based RS-232 connection as well as an IP based protocol except it's a proprietary protocol now the thing now things like uh open home assistant or home assistant will allow you to talk to those proprietary protocols because everybody in the home and automation industry understands that lutron makes the best lights out there for colored accent lighting like if i want to light a room or i have some around my bed around my tv and stuff like that i use a company called ltech and ltech uses the dmx 512 standard so it is a standard lighting protocol, but the nice thing is they make a little 2.4 RF uh, communicators so you can tie it back to your home automation system or you can just have a standalone remote. So, if, for example, in the kids' room, they don't doesn't need to be on the automation system per se. They just need to be able to change the color of the, the, of the room walls. And so there's little controllers that can go on the wall and do those kinds of things, but they operate on that DMX standard. So if, if and when I ever want to control it from the automation system, I have that capability. Access control systems, I tend to prefer carry systems. There's nothing particularly great about carry except for the fact that they cater to self-installs and so it's a it's a it's a enterprise grade um, access control system but they will give you the software even if you're just a joe blow that wants it and larger companies like honeywell sometimes are, are weird about that uh, universal remote control is one of the worst companies for ever releasing software to, if you're not an authorized installer they won't give it to you and they have all these stupid rules about authorized uh, installers giving you the software and um so Kerry doesn't play those games. They'll just give it to you. And so for that reason, I like it. Now, it's Windows software to program it, but you can run it inside of a VM. And again, all of the controls are supported with close contact, so you can tie it into a perfectly open source uh, automation system without ever having to worry about uh, you know, an API getting deprecated or something like that. Climate control. I use Honeywell, the Honeywell Red system. Again, Honeywell, the best thermostats out there. Uh, again, completely proprietary c- protocol, but... There is ways. There are ways to talk that to that Honeywell proprietary uh, protocol with OpenHab, and you're able to communicate and 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 go forward with that. Every one of those systems that I listed, Lutron, the LTEC, the Carry Systems, and Honeywell, every one of those systems. You know what they all have in common? None of them require the internet, the cloud, some server, some service, nothing to work. If the apocalypse happened tomorrow, as long as I had AC electricity to my house. Every one of those systems would work. They may not be remotely controllable. They may uh, some of the automation parts of it may fail, like the automatic turning on and off and scheduling stuff. Some of that may fail, depending on if the computer crashes. But at the end of the day, when I walk up to my light switch and I push the button, the light switch comes on 100% of the time. When I go over to the bed and there's a little side night controller, and I go to turn the lights off because it's a closed system, because everything in that Lutron system talks together in and of itself without talking back to the automation controller. If I push the button next to my bed, the lights will go off 100% of the time, even if my network blew up and didn't even exist, right? The thermostats, they'll all continue to control the temperature regardless if the network is up or the home automation controller is up. Each one of those systems are capable of functioning in and of themselves completely independently, With but they have the ability to communicate what it is they're doing back to Home Assistant, and they allow uh, Home Assistant to control them. And so it's it, it, it's really a function of research, and there's no static answer. But the one thing that you said in your email that I really relate to, I'm not into uh, I'm not into fly by night installing, right? I don't want little bricks that plug into my outlet that I plug something else into. 
because it's not permanent. It's it's clearly a bad science project. It's something that you're just playing with. It's a toy. If you really want this stuff to last 10, 15, 20 years, you want it to become part of your life, it becomes second nature to the point that there's just a sink in your bathroom. And when you walk into the bathroom, you expect to be able to use that sink. When you walk into your kitchen, you expect to be able to use the dishwasher. There's no thinking involved. It becomes second nature. That's really, to me, where the real power of home automation is. Because again, I mean, to put a bow on this whole episode, it comes back to trust. You have to trust the infrastructure that you have in place. If you don't trust your own infrastructure, you're not going to use it and you're not going to enjoy it. So that's my advice. Hey, did you know that the Ask Noah Show is available 24 hours, 365 at AskNoahShow.com? You can go to podcast.asknoahshow and get all of the show notes, everything we reference. It's all there. Check it out. I'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. We'll see you there. <laughs>